0: Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway.
1: And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing.
0: We have with us today two distinguished, well-regarded actors both in theatre as well as... Other media like film and television. John Cullum and Rosemary Harris, welcome to XM Radio.
2: Thank you. It's nice being here.
0: John, um, you wouldn't bring this up, and Howard probably wouldn't, so I will. You've won two Tony Awards as Best Actor in a Musical for On the 20th Century in Shenandoah, a couple nominations as well for You're in Town and for uh, On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. Rosemary, you've won a Tony. Uh, For The Lion in Winter. And I counted something like half a dozen Tony nominations, if I counted correctly, for shows like Waiting in the Wings, A Delicate Balance, Hay Fever, Pack of Lies, Heartbreak House, The Royal Family. When I said Distinguished, I wasn't kidding. (laughs) 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 And – Howard and I have done some research. Uh, In full disclosure, we chatted briefly with Rosemary before you got here, John. You two have never worked together. In fact, never even really met until the show you're in now. Is that right? Uh,
3: Well, I did meet Rosemary. (gasps) Oh, John! But uh, she didn't remember. You haven't? She didn't remember you. (laughs) You It was a Theater World Award or something. I just kind of, I just said hello and then kind of. uh, and listened in on your conversation. It might have been with Richard Burton. I don't know.
2: When was this?
3: The um, Theater World Awards when um, when uh, what year? Uh, when Kate Burton got her uh, was introduced into it, and Richard
1: uh, gave her the prize. That would be yeah. somewhere around eighty three, eighty four. 84 when Kate so made her debut. Yeah,
2: about twenty years ago. Yeah, oh. and
3: um, um, but of course. Uh, Did World you win? Mary's,
2: are you a Theatre World Award winner? Yes, yeah, oh, I, I should know that, shouldn't uh, I? That was takes one so to long. know one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> My, I think I got mine before you, though.
1: I don't know. I well, think so. Rosemary in 1953, and John's in 1966. Yeah, you so. see? a couple, couple years. <laughs> but we should, we should say, you yeah, are. Rosemary has t- nope. done
3: so many different things and is known in so many different ways. Um, she's like. A, um, it's great to work with her, but uh, she, I've known about Rosemary for years and years, and have always ad- admired the things that she's done, and always wanted to just to meet and chat with her. Did never expect to be able to work with her. But... Well, you're
1: doing a lot more than meeting and chatting. <laughs> um, you are together now yeah, in pretty intimate, don't in in Ariel Dorfman's <laughs> new play, The Other Side, playing at Manhattan Theater Club. Uh, for the next few weeks yeah. um, as husband and wife. Now, can you tell us very briefly the the plot of the play?
2: Oh, John, over no, no, to you. No, you're the, no, no, you're, the no, you do this. You <laughs> do they
3: this. wouldn't believe me. anyway. <laughs> so you go ahead and say it and I'll gather my thoughts.
2: No, 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 no. It <laughs> bores in your court.
3: Well, um, it's about, um, um, as far as I'm concerned, it's about a married couple who... Uh, living um, in between two cities, Constanza and uh, Thomas, or actually they live in thomas and they 're right next to the border of constanza and uh, they um, they 've been there for twenty years their uh, son left when he was fifteen, and uh, the mother and the father both have been waiting on him to come back uh, and in the meantime they have um, the chore, or the job, or the responsibility, or the honor—whatever you want to call it—of burying the um, the dead who uh, are, are on their side of the border in Thomas uh, and keeping records so that the families can come and identify them later. And their relationship is a very strong one. Uh, he he at one time came to her village and. Um, uh, um, uh, he, he was. I, I keep thinking it was the Tennessee Valley Authority because I'm from Tennessee. When I remember when Norris Dam was put up, and they, all the people down below Norris Dam lost their houses. Were their flooded, yeah. and flooded. Yeah. So I went to her native village and told them, tried to get the people to move out because we were building a dam, and we fell in love. Uh, and. Um, I absconded with her. I ran away with her, and took her back to Thomas. And um, her father—what did did he? He died. In he
2: the, died. Yes, and I guess everybody died because because they
3: wouldn't move. Well, some of them moved. Most of them moved, I think. But, but as you, there's
0: there, there's some debate between your two characters as to where the border actually lies between the two countries. Uh, no, no, it's
2: no? no. I think the debate is between where the bombs fall. Oh, where the bombs fall. Yeah, which yeah. because game? they mm-hmm. fall pretty close to our house, which oh, has right. already been bombed, and we've rebuilt a shack in the ruins of the old house. And the play opens with us with a okay. slight argument as to where that particular oh. bomb fell.
3: After 20 years, uh, <laughs> we, we get a lot of kick out of either making love or... F- bickering. Bickering. <laughs> bickering with each other. We it's enjoy not too bickering. Much. <laughs> th- there's a great relief from um, the bodies, I guess.
1: <laughs> the play... Uh, people have noted have touches of Beckett, of Ionesco. Mm -hmm. I saw a little bit of Edward Albee in it Mm -hmm. Um, because it is – does seem to be an uncertain – it's not rooted in, in the specifics of a particular real place or a particular real time but it is this conflict that's been ongoing, the potentiality of the conflict to end and the the artificial divide that's created to create peace, which runs right down the center of your bed. Um, how have you approached the play? Because it is a play, as you say, in which you're dealing with a couple whose responsibility is is cataloging the dead. Yet there is the absurdity of a, of an at least a city border, it seems even more of an international border drawn down the lines of your your bedroom and your marriage. Did you approach this as comedy, as drama, as absurdism, as allegory?
2: Well, it's a little bit of everything, isn't it? Well, that's what, actually, that's the we approached one way
3: and ended up a, di- in a different way, did
2: Yeah, we? slightly. Um, Ariel slightly has changed the goalposts uh, in a way because um, the play on paper when we started rehearsing it was more Theatre of the Absurd, I think. But he was away for about three weeks doing another play out in Seattle. And when he came back and saw our rehearsals, he started doing rewrites and changing it a little bit here and there. So we've gone with the new changes. Um, but it is a play, I think, that, that combines a lot of different styles. You know, a lot of different... As you say, there's, a, there's the, this couple a longing for their child... And he did obviously exist, but whether he still exists, then that's a bit Edward Albee, you know, like Martha and and, her husband wanting their child.
3: I I find that he writes a little bit like Pinter. Mm-hmm. But uh, Pinter, you never know what – at issue. At least I never could figure out.
2: Well, Pinter doesn't want you to know. No, I, mean, I did a play of Harold's and he got very angry when I tried to pin him down yeah, and say, you imagine. know, is this a fact or isn't it? And, and he got quite cross with me and he said, I don't want it. I don't want it spelled out.
1: Well, I am curious. Um, In talking and working with Ariel Dorfman, Ariel very famously was part of the Allende government in Chile Mm -hmm. and when there was a US-backed coup to depose the government, uh, he was one of the few government officials who got out safely and securely with his family and it's certainly a recurrent theme of his work is... Imprisonment, imprisonment and hardship. You yeah. mentioned the play in Seattle, Purgatoria, which yeah. was at Seattle Rep. It's very much about people locked in an endless prison. Um, did you talk to Ariel about his own experiences? Well, did that impact us? we
2: did because he gave us all his book and um, I've just finished reading it, actually. It's a dense book to read. Yeah, very And difficult. it's difficult because it jumps backwards and forwards in time. But it is, it's overwhelming by the time you finish it, think what he went through. So no wonder his mind and heart are full of that sort of struggle.
0: Well, Howard uh, alluded before to theater of the absurd. I guess where maybe the absurdity would come in is the third character in the play played by Gene Farber is a border guard who literally smashes his way into your home and puts yellow police tape right down the middle of your your home – across the middle of the bed the double says, bed, yeah, right, and says to each of you to stay on your own side of the border because after all your characters are from two different countries so you have to stay in what has now been re-deci- re-decided as your countries.
2: And we have to have visas to cross each other. Right, yeah. I mm-hmm. have to go have a visa to go and cook yeah, and you have to have a visa to go to your <laughs> toilet. <laughs> right.
0: Unfortunately the stove is on his side of the room <laughs> not your side, <laughs> yeah. right?
3: Well so. at le- le- least it means that I get to see her when she comes to cook supper. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and I see him when he comes to go to the toilet. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> so we, we have a lot of fun with it we yeah. have, it's a very serious play but we've also had a lot of giggles but and a lot of fun with it the characters,
3: I. what I like about them is that the characters have fiber to them they, they've mm-hmm. got, there's a tremendous strength um, uh, and resolve in, in both characters I think but mainly in the woman she's she's certainly fierce the, the feisty the
2: one de- yeah. de- de-
3: determination not to be pushed around in her own home and he is, um, he's. I find it he he is determined to get away, but he never will because she won't leave, and he's stuck with her. He will not leave her.
0: And and he is dying to go back to the city and live in yeah. the city rather than yeah. in the countryside. Yes.
3: Well, I, I, who knows if he if he got back to the city, he'd probably be complaining about not getting back to the country. But mm-hmm. the, you know the character of Jean, um, the Gene plays the, the guard, is uh, I. I um, that's always been a, a little bit confusing to me, and I think that one of the things is that you feel like, or, or I feel like, that Ariel was able to get a resolution for the the the, the second act of the play. But I think it, it may be throwing people a little bit that uh, that it does seem like theater of the absurd when he comes in, and I wonder if it couldn't be a little different. Uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, it's it's drawn like uh, like exaggerations which make it into a kind of a caricature uh and it goes very dark and yeah.
2: question you, is is he mad is is the boy uh, is he off his rocker is he crazy? Is he a real guard? Or has he been abused so much? Is his past real? I say, well, maybe he got hit by a shell and he's lost his memory. But I think the overall, when I've talked to friends who've seen it, they sum him up as being really quite damaged as a human being and damaged and, and, and therefore mentally damaged as well as physically damaged. And, and that, I think, is rather. Is the tragic part of it that this?
3: I I think that's deliberate on Ariel's part. Yeah, yeah. Uh, For instance, when he he searches you, there's at that particular moment, the uh, the audience is still trying to determine if he's really Mm -hmm. your son, and it becomes a very sexual uh, search, Mm -hmm. which is disturbing to me, and certainly disturbing to the character that I play. That uh, the son is being aroused sexually by his own mother. Uh, maybe you didn't say or, that. or the
0: person who may be the son may not be. That's may, right. May, That's may never may really
3: resolved. But but I don't. Ariel wanted that. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Well, that
1: that uncertainty, and even in this triangle, that uncertainty is even reminiscent of perhaps Ariel's best-known play, *Death and the Maiden* which is all about you know is this man the person again is this mm-hmm. the person from many years ago or is this something that they've projected so so clearly again this idea of Ariel's work through through the various themes comes up here but in different in different forms, We are we so spend. obviously
2: longing for our son to return that maybe almost anybody who walked through that door, and we don't get many visitors, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that we would project as being our son. at Because right when we bring that first body in, one of my first things is I d- said, don't you think he looks like our son? And he says, no, he's too young. Mm-hmm. And one of my pet fears, and I'm not sure if Aria wanted the audience to feel this, but I sometimes feel that this boy that we do examine and, and tabulate may well have been our son. And we didn't recognize him.
0: No,
3: he's too young.
0: For our radio audience, we should explain that the two of you make a livelihood. Your two yeah. characters make a livelihood by caring for the deceased, the people who are killed in the war and burying them. It's over 5,000 that you've cared for over about a 20-year period. So you're kind of like, you know, caretakers of the cemetery. And And we project on
2: this boy mm -hmm. our longing for him to Mm -hmm. be who he is and then he resists because he says, I'm not, I'm not. My parents are dead. You couldn't be my parents. And maybe we aren't his parents because then of course I think Ariel's incredible thing that when I first read the script, I just burst into tears reading the script when the mother says when when she realizes they're going to have to bury this young man and leave um that she is something that she cannot face, and she then decides on the spot that it isn't her son and that she will go on waiting and well, I remember reading that, and the tears were." Per- it popped out of my eyes. You, I thought, you have oh. a little
3: difficulty playing that particular moment on stage. I do so. anyway. <laughs> and, and, Which is probably a And good thing even – you remember the, the
2: she... first readings? I, I uh, couldn't yeah, I get know, through. You mean, you I couldn't – well, kept... But she's
3: supposed to turn off all this emotion <laughs> and it's very difficult because when uh, she gets going, Rosemary has a tendency to play very deeply. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, I think
2: of Cindy Sheehan, you know, the mother that's camping outside the White House, because of her son, who's mm. never going to return, and I th- think of her so often, and think what she would do if someone said he didn't really die; it was a mistake. What, what, they identified the body the wrong way, and and he's alive. Can you imagine? Yeah. And how she would mm-hmm. leap at that, right. even if it was a straw in the wind. If it wasn't, someone said, "There's just a chance that it. He, maybe it was a mistake." What, know, what,
0: what do you each see as, as the message uh, of the show there 's a whole bunch of different themes going on
2: there are a lot of there 's several plays in, you right. know in there aren 't there um, The main method i don 't know uh, well it 's anti war of course um, and that 's why I wanted to do it. I think that was the main reason because I'm, I'm I am very anti war
0: mm-hmm. And as a daughter of an Air Force man, uh, the anti-war is interesting.
2: Yes, although my father, uh, Harris was his name, and he, I hasten to say he wasn't Bomber Harris. Uh-huh. He used to get confused with Bomber Harris because they were both at the Air Ministry together, and my father was a lower rank. My father was a group captain and then an air commodore, but he never was an Air Vice Marshal. And I was—I am so grateful that he didn't have that responsibility of bombing Dresden. <laughs> <laughs> because and, – and my father was too old to actually fly in the Second World War. He flew in the First World War in the Royal Air Corps but he didn't fly in the Second World War. He was the commander of a station and watched his bombers leave and waited to count them when they came back in the, in the morning.
1: Now, before we began the interview, uh, John and I were chatting with you, Rosemary, and the word retirement came across and you commented that you know actors never retire. The parts get smaller.
2: That was Albert Finney. I was quoting Albert Finney. You're quoting Albert
1: Finney. (laughs) But um, in this case, clearly the parts have not gotten smaller. You are in a show in which you are together on stage for the entire show. But for actors with – and John only touched upon your copious credits between the two of you. um, You are – you've chosen to work in a 300-seat theater off-Broadway. Certainly Manhattan Theater Club is not an obscure company but it is on a smaller stage and – I'm just wondering about your choices to work. And John, I know you recently did uh, the play Sin off Broadway as well. Well,
3: you can quote me; it's not as clever as uh, Albert's, but the roles haven't gotten smaller for me. The theaters have gotten smaller, <laughs> <laughs> and that's the truth. Uh, and I, I, you know, now I, I I see that as an opportunity. I I accepted some kind of award. I said I've graduated to off Broadway because I get to do a lot of things, you know. And yeah. when you're in a musical, it's a hit. You're in there for a year and a half, two years, and there's just great big chunks of my life that were mm-hmm. spent in uh, four or five different um, musicals. But in in the last ten years, I've worked, uh, I've gotten to do a lot of different plays, mm-hmm. and that's because the theaters are small and they don't they don't um, the runs aren't as long
2: my last two plays uh, have been off-Broadway because the last one was Edward Albee's All Over which was for the roundabout but down at that small theatre in Gramercy and I hadn't done off-Broadway for 30 years I think at least I don't know, it's lost in the mists of time but I'm I'm (laughs) awfully glad um, to be doing it very grateful
1: well since we keep bringing up quotes i'd read a quote from you rosemary which i'm slightly paraphrasing saying as you get older you can take more risks in your career and has that given you the opportunity to take on roles or have you taken on projects that you might not have taken on years ago
2: um i don't know that i've said that particularly mm. um don't remember. I'll have
1: to dig that you interview to, out again yes, and show you. <laughs> I'm
2: not sure that um, that's something that's not a philosophy of mine particularly. Um, I've done a lot of classics and I've done a lot of plays of dead playwrights and I've, I've been happy to do plays with living playwrights and, and Pinter being one and, and Albert Finney being one and Ariel Dorfman being one. And it's, um, it's very exciting. It's a little unnerving having the playwright sitting right there in front of you while you're you're working, but it's also um, a great privilege.
0: Well, how is it for both of you being so well regarded in the theater, so well known by theater buffs, to perhaps be best known by the American public? In your case, John, as Hollings on uh, Northern Exposure, <laughs> as Doctor Green's ailing father on <laughs> the ER, and Rosemary, in your case, just recently in Spider Man, oh, Aunt s- May. <laughs> you're not I mean, kidding. I People was in. <laughs> it's that's very funny. different. Yeah, I was in
2: Bloomingdale <laughs> just about half an hour ago, and buying something, and somebody, wanted the girl behind the counter, said, "Oh, you're Aunt May, aren't you?" And I said, "Well, sometimes I am."
1: <laughs> <laughs> but that must be, you know, after distinguished stage careers to suddenly be people who are recognized on the street it's it's i mean here in new york perhaps there there's always been that but as as you're around has that what's what's that effect been for you
2: well it's been fun for me because actually all through my career i've always worn wigs i've all you know and a wig can make somebody quite look quite different. So I was never recognized, even as I came out of the stage door, going in and out, I was a different person or, or on the stage. So, but now in the last few years, I've just been wearing my own hair, which is a great breakthrough for me because I never used to. And actually this play, I'm actually wearing a wig, which I haven't worn a wig for quite a while. But as Aunt May, I think one of the reasons I got the part was Sam Raimi uh, said, "Oh, I know an actress who's got white hair and a bun," and of <laughs> course that's Aunt May's distinguishing characteristic. So uh. I
3: think as you should tell the story of where, where how Ariel got the got the script to you.
2: Oh well, that's yes, I suppose that's interesting. I live in North Carolina, in Winston Salem. Uh, a lovely city that has the North Carolina School of the Arts in it, which is a great feather in our cap. And Ariel has the chair or a chair at um, Duke University in Durham, which is just down down the road a bit. And a mutual friend of ours, the wonderful English director, Frank Dunlop, happened to be visiting Ariel because they're working on a project together. And he gave, Ariel gave Frank the play to read. And Frank said, well, why don't you send it to Rosemary? She's just literally a hop and a skip and a jump. And so so <laughs> Ariel <laughs> sent it to me, and, and I loved it. I thought, this is fascinating. And neither
1: of them knew that other lived there. The no. North Carolina connection. No, mm-hmm.
2: not at all. And I loved the play. I thought, I've never done anything quite like this, and it is a challenge, and, and I would like to be considered for it. And, and then I was the offer was made, and I, I jumped at it.
0: And, John, do you get reaction from store clerks? For being Holling or Dr. Reenshone. Yeah,
3: or all different kinds of people. It's a lot of different, from different sorts. And um, I didn't wear wigs, but I tell you, when I walked out of the theater, I don't care what the show was, in New York City, I was not, I, the people on the street didn't know who I was. I, I began to understand how powerful film is when people started cab drivers even, would would say, would recognize me from the commercial that they did of Shenandoah. Oh, really? And that's the only time I'd ever gotten any re- recognition from people just off the street. And then, of course, when you do a, a, a long running show... It's fun for me. I don't have to put up with the, uh, you know, uh, what some people have to. It's just an occasional person, but it kind of tickles me.
2: Mm-hmm. It tickles me too. Mm-hmm. I, and my my fan base are all about three or four years old. <laughs> They're the ones that really recognise me. I was. Have, have I got a minute to tell you this little story? I was sure. up in the King's Road in England last summer, and there was an Indian lady with a little girl sitting on her arm, and another tiny one in a baby carriage down here. And she tapped me on the shoulder outside a shop called Marks and Spencer's, right in yeah. there in the King's Road. And she said, excuse me, I don't want to be rude, but my little girl says, you're the lady in Spider-Man. And I looked at the little girl, <laughs> and I said, well, she's absolutely right, I am. I said, how old is your little girl? She said, she was four yesterday.
3: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know I, I, that's one that you know, I knew I would have a problem being interviewed with Rosemary, because her stories are so wonderful. We have to tell a story about... You know, just last, you, you last week when you, um, the, the little the talented person who was playing the, viola, viola, the violin oh
2: yes I was at a wonderful musicale and uh, this brilliant young man was playing the cello and I thought he was about 18 he was uh, oriental uh, descent and his a beautiful oriental lady was playing the piano for him and we were all just absolutely mesmerized by this performance. And when it was over, um, everybody started talking and I was told that this young man was only 11 years old... Mm And the only thing he wanted to do was to meet Aunt May. (laughs) And there I had been sitting at his feet with my jaw and my mouth open, this incredible genius, this young child. And I thought he was at least 18 or 20 and he's 11.
1: (laughs) As we talk about the celebrity that's come to you through through film and and television – Uh, There is a coincidence in your careers, which is that in 1966, you were both Tony nominees. Your first nominations, Rosemary, you won that year for The Lion in Winter. John, you were nominated for On a Clear Day. Um, With Barbara
2: Harris, the lovely Barbara
1: Harris. Well, I just wanted to ask, you know, the flush (laughs) of that success. Um, Do you remember that that first, it was certainly not your first shows. I, I don't. I want to make clear. You, uh, but it was your first <coughs> big starring roles.
2: Were you there at that Tony Award number thing? Because uh, it was before television.
1: Yeah, I'm. It was I, the it, last yeah. year actually before the Tonys it went was, national. Uh, and, and it, it was in a, a, was sort sort was at a ho- hotel. Room. Well, yes? in fact, we should be very clear. They had been televised in those years, but that year, 1966, was the year that Helen Mencken, who was the president uh-huh. of the Wing, passed away. So there was a very subdued celebration that. Here. It
2: seemed like but, a sort of tea party. But,
1: but ask but we, me, wait, I can I've, – I've, uh, I remember – Were you there? Uh, yes, I was <laughs> well, there. But, I was um, there. You both in the same and, room.
3: Uh, Merrick was – he won about four or five awards. He was He was the per- person that you enjoyed hating. And he, he came You're up – You're talking about David Merrick, war. the yeah, producer. David Merrick. And I remember at the curtain call the night before, Barbara Harris said to me – in between bows, she said, "Listen, she had been nominated too." She said, "Listen, uh, are you going to that thing tomorrow?" And I said, "Yeah, I guess so." She said, "Would uh, I don't think I will. Would you, would you accept for me if I?" <laughs> and I said, "Sure." <laughs> and then when we got there, it it was just a it was just a big room, very low key, and everybody was sitting in chairs, yeah. uh, like a like a tea party. Yeah, and, we, and I was we were all sitting around. Uh, my show had closed
2: quite a long time ago and I was sort of invited as I had been nominated and I joined – I had nowhere to sit really and some ladies said, oh, we'll make room for you and they sort of made room at their table and I sat there and then they got to the – my category – and then they said my name, and nobody knew where to look because nobody knew who I was or, who or what I looked like. And I wasn't quite sure whether I should get up or not. And then I sort of said, Excuse me. And I got up. And, but it was, and oh, and, 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 and it was before they were put on a plinth. Plinth, that plinth. lovely word. And it's flat, it's a flat disc in a little box. I don't know if yours isn't. And no, no. and it um, and I think but I'm the only person that it says Rosemary Harris, dramatic star. But the star is spelt with two R's. <laughs> so I am a dramatic star no, 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 no. Star-ru-ru.
0: Star-ru-ru.
2: <laughs> And I keep asking people, can I not have it a plinth? Could could somebody give me have it. Put on a plinth for me because I use it as a kind of um, paperweight or something. Oh. But you know, if it sure was if on a
1: plinth, you're talking to the right guy. Well, we'll, we'll talk about. Do you think off I could have hair. it on a plinth? <laughs> we'll see what we can do about a spare plinth, which is the first time I've ever been asked for a plinth. <laughs> but but in I those years, happy what what was across. the Broadway scene in in that era? Do you remember? Was was it a different scenario than it is today? Oh, yes. Did it feel different? It must be.
2: I'm not part of the Broadway scene. At the moment, I don't feel part of it. But I'm just trying to think in the last few years. It seemed different then. Yes, I don't know. It's intangible, really. I, I can't quite describe what it what's well, different. There I, were more plays, play plays, you know, weren't there?
3: Yeah. Um,
2: when I first came in 1952, I got a list of what was running. I had to make some talk. And there was something like 45 plays or productions put on in that year and some of them only ran for two or three nights they would go on tour and then they'd sink well of Hmm. course nobody does that anymore
3: no they don't even go on tours
2: anymore they don't
3: um, and Clear Day was a strange situation for me because I had been Richard Burton's understudy in uh, in Camelot and um, I was told by uh, uh, Alan J. Lerner's assistant, uh, Bud Whitney, that he's writing a new play and he's got you penciled in for the uh, wonderful role, the second uh, male lead. And uh, then about – I left Shenandoah to, and did a show with Bob Preston uh. called we Take the Town. and closed in Philadelphia. And then I saw in the paper that they were looking for a John Cullum type.
0: John Cullum type. That's yes, what the ad right. was in the paper.
3: It was in one, you know, show business or something. Like that, and I called up Bud Whitney in a rage and said, "What in the hell is this going on?" And I said, "You're looking for a John Cullum type, and I, and i here. I am. You, 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 can, you
0: can have the real thing. <laughs> you don't need that type.
3: <laughs> Alan doesn't think that you can that, that you can play the humor, John. I'm just have to tell you that. Good <laughs> heavens! Yeah, what and then, a chief. But I kept going back and reading, and then they finally made me um, uh, l- they got, got a linguist or what you, speech whatever they call them uh, and taught me a Viennese accent and I read for the leading role for about uh, th- I'd read 12 times for, for both roles and then I went to do the movie Hawaii and um, and was that was a big wild thing and I was, ended up in California on uh, uh, kind of a sabbatical, three months on Hawaii, and then I was waiting there in California to finish the movie, and I got a call from Boston saying to come up and, and, and that Alan wanted me to come to Boston. I said, I am not going to do that. I said, you guys jerk me around too much first. Oh, time.
2: I would think so. And he what said, a... no.
3: I said, well, he kept talking. He said, and finally, he said, please, John. I said, well, is he serious about this? And he said, yes, he is definitely serious. And I said, well, well what, what's wrong with uh, Clifford? Because Clifford, uh, uh, oh, Clifford, oh, gosh, I can't remember his name. Clifford, um, anyway, the guy who was playing the role that I had originally penciled in for, he says, This is not Clifford. It's uh, for Louis Jordan, the lead. huh and so that, that was a, oh, kind of a wild a story. ride. yeah. And that's, that's how they, oh. I, I ended up – and people didn't know I was in. But anyway, the reason I, that came to my mind is the fact that in those days we used to go out of town for Broadway, you know, for yeah. openings. And we don't do that
2: anymore. No, nobody can afford to.
3: Oh.
2: And, and people would take risks. They would go out to see – try it out. But nobody tries anything out anymore. You just dare not you know, an out-of-town yeah. tryout, there isn't such a thing. No. Well, it
0: becomes prohibitively expensive yes, in many cases. Yes, I
2: mean, nobody yeah, could yeah. afford that. And
0: also Broadway has changed because of the jet airplane. Back in the mm-hmm. 50s, early 60s, people weren't flying from all over America to come to New York to right. see Broadway shows. That's right. So you were really depending yeah, on, on, a, a on an audience very much in the tri-state New York. It seemed like to me that was
3: there was a large Jewish community that, uh, uh, that supported the theater. yeah. yeah. Um,
2: especially the plays, especially mm-hmm. the serious. And plays. And now, of
0: course, you have families coming in to see the Lion King and mm-hmm, Phantom and the shows mm-hmm, like that mm-hmm. that have been running for for years. Yeah,
3: and what, one of the things that has changed in musical comedy, very definitely, is that uh, if you can keep a play running for two years, whether it's any good or not, people it'll run for another four or five. Just but, on its name. Well, uh, because people book in advance and they call somebody from from uh, Phoenix or wherever, Sioux City, and you and you say, I'm going to New York, uh, what do you recommend that I see? They mention something that they know will still be running. Yeah. So they'll mention Phantom and say, oh, you've got to see the Phantom. And and that has kept a lot of shows alive, something like Cats, I think, uh, and people would go because they knew it was going to be there and they'd book it in advance. Yeah. And that's a strange thing phenomena to me but uh, I think it's true
2: when I first came I'm looking back now in 52 of course air the theatres weren't air conditioned so there was definitely a season Mm -hmm. the plays would run till June and never through to July. Ah. And then they wouldn't start crank up again until September. So there was this – there wasn't any air conditioning.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so. August was the big big time to come to New York mm-hmm. I mean, for, the, for the auditions and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, of course,
0: that's tourist season, which means the tourist wouldn't get to see the shows because the shows There would be nothing. Running.
2: There wasn't anything yeah. to see. Right. You
1: know? mm-hmm. Well, before we conclude, I, I wanted to bring up uh, a personal issue, but it's, it's a parallel between the two of them two of you. You are both married to writers, creative people. You both have children who've entered the business. You're not coming from – you're not theatrical families. You started theatrical families and I'm just wondering about the experience of, of, of being part of that and, and – Certainly how you and your spouses see your children going on into this and and the feelings about that.
3: Well, um, my wife was mainly a dancer and um, I didn't know my son was interested in theater until he had his first job. Uh, And he was doing very well in New York and then I went to California and my wife followed and he had always wanted to be in film and and TV so he he went out there. And stayed, and still is out there, and as it it's it's such an iffy business on that and that score, and so i feel I feel terrible that he hasn't um done better than he has not not because he's not good but because I know he wanted success success never really mattered to me that much but, well, uh, he's
2: still got lots of time yeah you know? well
3: he, yeah and but i just i, I I suffer for him in the business. I've been through the things that he's been through, and I know it was bad for me. And I didn't—I wasn't driven the way he was. But I think—I don't know—it's it's been a difficult thing for me. And I know it's different from you, from you, because I've met Jennifer, and uh, well. I know some of the things. You ought to. Her daughter is an extraordinary
1: person. And. Uh, uh, her, yeah. our, but when Jennifer our, said she wanted to act, what was? Yes, your it was your strange because
2: because my husband John my husband John Ely um, and my husband John Collum and (laughs) my husband, yes Um, he's a writer and a wonderful writer Uh, he's won many awards and he's had two of his novels made into films so he's been very successful and Jennifer as a little girl showed evidence of being a good writer she would write stories and, and things and she had a very original turn of phrase. It wasn't anything that she'd learned or copied. So I assumed that she'd follow in his footsteps. She's obviously got it. She's got those genes. But one day she did come to me when she was about 14 or 15 and she said, "Mum, I want to go in the theater. And I said, Why? And she said, Well, why wouldn't I? You have so much fun. (laughs) So what could I say except, well, go for it. And so she did. She went to Interlaken. You know, the music the music school up in although she's not musical but she wanted to do the drama up there and uh, then from there she said i want to go to drama school and and then one thing followed and she went to a drama school in england and never graduated because peter hall came along and picked her out for a television series that he was going to do and when he auditioned her <clears throat> he said um, she, she ran she, she, she came and, and then he asked a few questions and then, then she got up to leave and he said oh no no, no don't, don't, don't be in such a hurry tell me about yourself and, and she said well what do you want and what, what do you want to know and he said well where did you go to school and she said well I went to 18 schools <laughs> he said well why did you go to 18 schools and she said well my father's a writer and my mother's an actress and then Peter said well would I know your mother would, would, would I have I come across your mother and Jennifer said well you might her name is Rosemary Harris. And Peter burst out laughing. He said, Look, look what I've just written on this piece of paper. Beside your name, as a sort of aide memoir, I've written Voice of Rosemary Harris.
3: Um, So,
2: wasn't that funny? So she got the job, um, not because she was my daughter, and and I'm always very proud of that.
0: Well, you've both acted with your own kids, have you not?
3: Yeah, I have, and that's uh, been the most fun.
2: I've not acted with Jennifer, but I've acted Jennifer. In Ah, two things, I've been the same character. So we haven't played opposite each other, Uh because then Peter asked me to be in that particular television series 40 years later. He asked me to be Jennifer, 40 Uh, years on. Uh So I got to play Jennifer's character called Calypso, a wonderful character. And then when we did Sunshine with Ray Fiennes, I got to play uh, Jennifer's role, but I got to play Jennifer as a mother and a grandmother.
0: That must have been interesting for Jennifer to see how she might look and act 40 years later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, well, I'm sure
1: it was. the future. Yeah, well, John, you said you really enjoyed acting yeah. with your son. The last
3: thing so what I did, did you do with him? I, I did, um, I did um, uh, a couple of seasons ago down at the uh, University of Tennessee with uh, with uh, Gerald Friedman directing.
2: Oh, yes, of course. The, the, you did the dresser. The dresser,
3: right. Oh, that uh, must that have
2: been modified. wonderful to yeah, do. Yeah, it together. was. And
3: then we'd worked with uh, together, he'd worked with his mother and I together uh, in uh, the um, Thomas Wolfe, La Angel.
1: Uh, All the way home. Lacombe Angel. Uh, oh, Comand, okay. yeah
3: Angel. Yeah. Um, so, and, he, and I played the father in that, and he played the son, and my wife played the wife.
2: Oh, really? Yeah, you know, but uh, know
3: that. Arthur Storch directed. So I really enjoy working with him. And he's a wonderful uh, stage actor, and um, I sometimes wish he'd stayed in New York.
0: Of Rosemary and John, for the next two weeks or so, you'll both still be working together because this show is a limited run. The other side is only intended yes, to run through Nash, January yes, 15th. Yes, Any nice. Anything's on the horizon for after the show closes? Any future plans at this point that we can talk about publicly?
3: <gasps> Rosemary's got some. I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to be free. <laughs>
0: hoping to be free. Taking a little rest. <laughs>
2: yes.
0: Rosemary's w-
3: doing a movie. What? I wanted to find out more about that movie.
2: What you mean Spider-Man 3. Is that what it is?
3: Yes. D- oh, I didn't know that. Yes,
0: yes, it is. Aunt
3: May returns.
2: Aunt May, yes.
3: <laughs> when when
0: yeah. do you start shooting that?
2: Um, I think uh, I just heard today that it might be February, the beginning or the first week in February, something yeah. like that. You
0: have a, a brief holiday for a couple of
2: weeks. Yes, yes, go back and clean my house in <laughs> North Carolina in Winston-Salem, which has yeah. been very neglected.
3: Uh, I, I, I turned down a, a tour of, uh, in Wicked. For it'd be a year, and I didn't want to do it. <laughs> a
2: tour, uh, you know, yes, it's hard to tour when you when uh, you've
3: got. I never toured any of my shows. No, uh, that I would created on Broadway.
2: No, and if you've got a spouse who doesn't really want to tour either, no. I don't think John would be very happy if I took to the road. No. I wouldn't mind the road, but uh, me but then, it's so not much. something that you John... You want to go on the road? Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> we <could laughs> we'll let Emily go. and John get together. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well,
0: on that note, Rosemary Harris, <laughs> John Cullen, thanks so much. It's been delightful having you here today
2: at Downstage Center. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Thank
1: you. <laughs> For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org.
0: And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.